This week on FX Guide TV. We look at the new extension release of 2012's Flame and Smoke from Autodesk. This and more coming up next. Hello and welcome to FX Guide TV. And boy, do we have a great show for you this week, coming to you from Canada and SIGGRAPH 2011. Autodesk Media and Entertainment have just announced new versions of their VFX and 3D software today at SIGGRAPH. But before heading over to Vancouver, John visited Montreal to get a sneak peek at the new features coming out in Flame and Smoke later this year. But more on that in just a sec. First of all, let's catch up with the boys at the first SIGGRAPH ever held outside the USA. That's right, and we're here in Vancouver. Actually, it's the first time, John, that SIGGRAPH has moved out of the sort of continental United States and to, uh, to another country. So it's a bit of a first and obviously reflects the moves to have more production done in Vancouver. Yeah, lots of facilities. We actually visited some earlier this week before the start of the conference, which we'll be covering later on FX Guide. And certainly great to be up here on one of the alternate Los Angeles years. But uh, I just want to say a shout out to Jeff who could make it up for this trip as well. Absolutely. Now, in addition to going to some facilities before the show actually started, John, you had a chance to get an exclusive look at some of the new stuff coming from Autodesk. Yeah, and what's happening again is Autodesk is having this idea of a global release, and they have new versions of all of their entertainment products like Maya, Max, as well as Flame and Smoke. You may have seen some stuff from Max, which is a new Max to AE bridge that we'll be covering more in print articles uh, on FX Guide. It was really nice to have the time to sit down with Philippe Suero up in Montreal and catch up on what's new in the Flame and Smoke releases. The extension introduces a, a major milestone in terms of interop between Smoke, Flame and Luster. And uh, this, is, this translates mainly in effectively the first round trip workflow that uh, supports soft effects data. So if you have a timeline in Smoke that has soft effects data, you can actually send it, open it inside of Luster, preserve the soft effects data. Now Luster doesn't understand it. Mm -hmm but still allows you to grade the original material that sits underneath the soft effects, so the sources, and then send back the graded material back to smoke where the, the timeline essentially gets reconstructed with the soft effects data preserved on top of the actual graded version. So you effectively have like a round tripping workflow now that becomes enabled and all the soft effects are supported, gap effects are supported, time warps, pretty much everything gets preserved when you open it inside of Lustre. It's, it's a major step forward. Uh, particularly for Flame Premium, I guess, at this point, you know, the way that the, the, two, uh, the two applications can collaborate together. And there's also some new stuff in getting media in and out of uh, Flame and Smoke. Yeah, I actually probably, uh, you know, long awaited from the Mac community, the, the ability to actually export ProRes from, from Smoke on Mac. So that's something that comes into the extension. DNX HD on QuickTime actually makes its way also inside of Smoke on the Mac. It was already on Linux, uh, but now it's, uh, it's effectively available also on Smoke on the Mac, on both platforms. We're also introducing MXF export, OP1A, uh, with various uh, codecs, uh, uh, and also we're introducing HDRX. Which uh, is a big red, one. Which is, which is a big one. Uh, with an interesting twist is that, you know, we'll be supporting the, um, the blending of the two exposures to create an output referred uh, uh, image uh, uh, as the, uh, uh, you know, but so, so basically if someone had been using it in their offline, they wrote down some settings, you can actually recreate those. 
Yes, you could recreate those. So it's uh, it's really a basic blending. It doesn't actually change the fact that you know the color space of the image remains what it was supposed to be. So it's what you. But everyone does that. Everyone does that for sure. Uh, we're adding an extra twist, which is we thought it would also be useful to actually generate an actual scene referred HDR or an approximation from the two exposures. And so this is an extra option that we will provide where, you know, effectively you create a 16-bit float HDR image out of the two exposures. And then you, in one file, preserve that entire dynamic range that was I captured. I think that is really interesting, I think. Uh, it's, it's probably going to be relevant for a range of people, not everybody. Because right. uh, as you pointed out, lots of people will just work with the regular blending. Uh, but it's just an extra option that may be relevant more from, from a compositing perspective or or a CG and uh, live action compositing perspective. So anyway, so these options are there. Now I've noticed one thing uh, that's a bit troubling to me in a way, and that's there's a reliance on gateway import. And it seems like anything that's new seems to be done with a gateway. But from an end user standpoint, I've seen it myself at Hunani and on uh, MyFlame. There's a lot of instability of it in it. Um, and you read about it in the forums. And it's kind of tough from an end user to want to rely on it because it just, it's hard to debug. It doesn't work sometimes. I mean, you guys aware of this? I mean, I'm sure you're aware of it. Yeah, we're we're actually very much aware of it. We're painfully aware of it, and so I mean, I really apologize for the trouble that it's been causing in the field, and to uh, uh, and for sure. I mean, as far as we're concerned, we are most definitely uh, we most definitely want to uh, to stabilize the gateway and make sure it's a very robust component that people can just essentially forget about it. And uh, to that purpose, uh, working towards that goal uh, in the extension, first of all, what we're doing is surfacing a lot more information when the gateway has a problem so that also we can actually capture back the information. There's some very complex setups with networks and stuff that are uh, hard for us to debug. And so we want to make sure that we capture back that data. And so the gateway is going to be a lot more verbose when something happens. The so idea to give you information that you can hopefully fix these yes, things. Yes, yeah. We really want to nail this down and any issues so that we can spot internally but, but actually ra uh, are raised in the field. We want to make sure we understand them to fix them. And also as a stopgap measure, uh, we will have a button in the extension that allows people to restart the gateway uh, directly from the application. So that's a bit of a stopgap measure, but for us, for, of course, is with the very clear intent of fixing it and, and uh, in future releases even uh, hide the whole service from, from the users. Ultimately, yeah, they're I mean, just I don't importing. care if it's gateway or not. I exactly. just want it to work and, and get it. Well, that's good to hear exactly. uh, from that standpoint. Okay, well, now we got that out of the way. Some infrastructure that you have done that I think people have been wanting and to have for a while is uh, even taking adaptive degradation a step further and dealing with action, motion blur, and things like that. Yeah, uh, actually, it's been a long time request. I think people asked inside of Batch for um, you know ways to deactivate motion blur and anti-aliasing because they essentially are rendered by every single action node in a Batch pipeline, and this can turn out to be quite slow when you're selecting a node that's downstream from all these action nodes. And so in 2012, we introduced the concept of adaptive degradation inside of Action uh, that was purely just, you know, a way to accelerate interaction. Now we've generalized this concept to the entire batch pipeline. And so there are a couple of nodes that now support an adaptive degradation state on top of Action. Uh, another one is Recursive Ops, which is a new flame effects. Um, and, but the new thing is that uh, at the batch level, if you look to, at the setup, you will see that there's an adaptive degradation section now. And you can actually uh, uh, tell batch that you wanted to propagate the, degrada the degraded state 
uh, uh, downstream to the rest of the nodes. So for action, for example, what it means is that if you've activated adaptive degradation in the node setup, and you will see that now we have options to actually say degrade motion blur, degrade software anti-aliasing, and you will see that in schematic there's a small exclamation mark that appears here. It's telling you here that at this point if you hit F4, uh, it's showing you a degraded version, potentially not faithful to the full render. Uh, and if I click on a, on a downstream node, actually it is that degraded uh, result that will be handed over. So just to explain the situation here, I have this uh, uh, title that's, uh, that's effectively zooming around and it has motion blur applied to it. If I hit preview, I'll see the effect of the motion blur, okay? But with the propagation of adaptive degradation, if I switch to the next node, which is downstream from action, you will notice that it's not rendering the uh, motion blur nor the anti-aliasing. So essentially you have like that switch that deactivates it for all the action nodes if you want to. And of course you will notice now that we have at the batch level a preview button. If you click on preview, just like in action, it actually calculates no matter what, it calculates the final render. That's a huge change for interactively working with stuff, especially now that you can chain multiple action steps together without degrading your imagery, not to confuse it with adaptive degradation. But again, the idea of having multiple changes with motion blur, it's really bad interactively, and this is an easy way around just flipping that switch off, and you yeah. can work with it. You can, you can also do it directly from the schematic, just control select the nodes that you want to uh, uh, affect with adaptive degradation, and it, uh, it will actually switch all these nodes to adaptive degradation if they support that. Well, let's take a look at some of the creative features that you've added, starting out with some of the relighting stuff that really started to hit in the initial release of 2012. Yeah, so uh, there's a couple of things that we didn't have time to actually finish and we had on our list, we had on our radar. One of them is, uh, is blooming. Uh, so blooming typically refers to this uh, effect that happens when you're filming something in bright light conditions and you end up having a, uh, you end up having some kind of glow effect around objects in, in the highlights. Uh, and, uh, and so blooming tries to simulate that effect instead of an action scene. And the way that you use it is uh, pretty much the, in the same workflow paradigm than lens flares and rays. If you have a light, you can switch to the, uh, to the node bin and I'm going to do something here that's new actually. I click on B and as you see it highlights all the nodes that start with B. Okay, so here I have my blooming node, it parents to the light. And at that point, what happens is that automatically it generates this blooming effect. Um, and the really cool thing about blooming is that, again, it's something that, uh, first of all, supports uh, lighting lengths, understands, uh, reacts to the lighting conditions, uh, to the position of the light in, inside of space, but it also outgrows the limits of the object. So if I boost the intensity here and I create something, as you see, that's uh, uh, way over the top here, you will notice that uh, the blooming effect actually outgrows the limits of That's the object. That's an important consideration because previously if you did it with some kind of spark or external effect fed it into an action layer, you'd be constrained by the image geometry or you'd have to feed it into a downstream node and apply the glow post-action. But this is actually happening in the action renderer. This is completely happening as, you know, it's, it's part of the, the newly introduced action post-processing pipeline. Uh, in which you have all the other lighting effects that also are uh, uh, post-processing effects inside of the action pipeline. 
And so the cool thing is that not only does it work on actual images and you can actually fix a threshold that will determine what portions of your image, what highlights should actually start blooming. And as you see, as I adjust the threshold, it actually changes that. Uh, but it also works on geometry. So here if I, I have like this text here, if I unhide it, it's also blooming uh, uh, directly. So again, as I said, anything in the, in, in the action scene can actually be affected by the blooming effect. The other interesting thing that I want to point out is, um, is that uh, uh, the, uh, so I have already here an effect here that I created before, and in this particular context you will see that the blooming is actually using a glint object and a streak object. Now those two objects are familiar for those of you who have already played with lens flares and with rays. They're essentially objects that texture the lens flare. Well you can also texture a blooming. And, and if you do that, then what would happen is that the pattern, the substance texture that's used in the pattern here is actually going to get stamped uh, over anything that's above your threshold. So this generates really kind of like uh, interesting effects. You can have your custom glints, your custom glares, pretty much construct them à la carte. Uh, just by parenting these textures and of course on on any of these you can change the uh, the settings of the pattern and if you want more branches well go ahead add more branches uh, if you want to rotate them if you want to uh, pretty much anything that uh, you would uh, you would think of change the intensity you're, you're welcome to do this and of course it reacts also to the position of the camera so as I'm moving my camera around, it does its stuff. So it's very flexible. Well, in the vein of relighting, you might not expect it, but some of the improvements you made in G-Masks have actually had an impact in lighting as well in this release. That's a good point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, let me uh, show you this, uh, this little setup that I have here. It's very simple. I have essentially a light, if you look at my schematic. I have a G-Mask here that sits in front of my light. And I have my light with rays, and you see I've textured it with uh, actually a smoke element. Okay, so this creates this, uh, sorry, this kind of dramatic effect where you can actually feel that there's the, the smoke that's being outlined. Now the cool thing is that you see that my G-mask, which is in invert mode, okay now, is actually generating an occlusion in the rays. So as I move my G-mask around, you see that it's actually sculpting the rays. Okay, which is something that the G-Mask could not do before. And if we switch to the UI of the G-Mask, you will see here, oops, sorry, you will see that now it has this option that uh, says use as occluder, okay? And when you do that, effectively it triggers all the occlusion mechanisms that typically uh, would affect the lens flare, the rays. So even if I, if I were to attach a, a lens flare here, you will also see that uh, it will get occluded by the G-Mask. There you go. So as I move the G-mask around, you see all the occlusions actually happen on all the objects, which is, which is kind of cool. So that's very cool for G-masks, but uh, also it doesn't stop there. We've, we've also added presets for G-masks, so you can finally draw uh, rectangular shapes. Uh, so if you go to the node bin, you will see that the G-mask section now has multiple options. Uh, one is the uh, G-mask, uh, elliptical G-mask. So if I draw here, you see I'm drawing a G-mask with a bounding box. I can still uh, move the, the bounding box around, scale it around, still add gradients, but I can also do this with a rectangle. There you go. Well, one of the things that really got smooths and ahs in one of the beta previews in the beta group was the addition of ambient occlusion in this release, which really helps some of the lighting and effects you can do in action. 
Right, so this is still kind of like closing the loop on the whole lighting stuff. So in 2012, we introduced the, the cast shadows that was long overdue, of course. Um, and, and in this extension, what we're doing here is, uh, is introducing something that's very cool and it's called ambient occlusion. Now, this is something that may not be very familiar to people who are, you know, like more 2D oriented and familiar to more like CG people. But ambient occlusion is essentially uh, really the effect of contact shadows. So as you see here, I have this text here that's uh, uh, floating around uh, above the ground. And you'll notice here that I have this region here that is not actually a cast shadow. It's actually the effect of the ambient occlusion. Okay, so if I uh, spot my text, I just want to... There we go. Okay, just let me spot one of the text here, and I'm going to move it in Y. And as you see, as I move it closer to the ground, you see that there's a denser area that's appearing on the floor, okay? And that's the effect of ambient occlusion, okay? It's really proximity shadows. And the cool thing about them is that they, they're actually uh, calculated by the GPU, and they're, uh, they're applied at the scene level. Uh, so if I switch to my other text here again, here's in the foreground, you will see that maybe you notice the effect here as the object gets closer. There you go. You see the effect of ambient occlusion. I can fully customize that at the output level and actually to the point where... Well, go ahead and turn it off just to show. Oh, actually, that's a good point. Let me just turn it up. There you go. So this is without ambient occlusion. As you see, I still have my shadow casting that's happening here. I have a light in my scene. If I move it around... Okay, I'm still casting shadows here. Okay, and it combines itself very effectively with, uh, with the ambient occlusion. Actually, it adds this uh, extra touch uh, to, uh, to actually fit the, uh, the graphics together uh, and fit them into the environment. So it's something that's a uh, uh, very nice addition, very effective for anything that's really motion graphics um, at this point. As I said, this is a, a GPU accelerated version. Uh, which is you can fully customize at the output level. And further down also, one thing that I wanted to mention is that we've also added an ambient occlusion pass. So if you want to just output the result of the ambient occlusion to further composite down, further down the line or separately or just have ambient occlusion for a specific object, you can do that. Uh, you can do that now. Well, this is really interesting because a lot of these things can be very computationally intensive, but you're having to do some kind of tricks and some really intelligent tricks to make this react in the way that people have come to expect within action, I think, which I found interesting. Yes, and uh, worth mentioning also is that ambient occlusion is also part of the adaptive degradation settings now. Since uh, we're introducing it now, you have the ability also to uh, switch it off or degrade it as you interact with the action scene, just to make sure that those taxing operations do not burden too much the interactivity of, of action. Now, another thing you've made some improvements in in this release is dealing with uh, flame effects, including a big new one, which is uh, stylized. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, it's, it's a really cool new addition that, uh, that we're introducing here. So on the flame effects side, first of all, there are lots of improvements uh, across the board, including in, in, in already nodes that we introduced in previous versions. Uh, but Stylize is definitely uh, one of the, the biggest one of the three new flame effects nodes that we're introducing. There's a new motion blur node, there's a recursive operation node that's very cool. And Stylize is effectively a style generator. And if you, uh, you can find it in the, in the node bin here, just hit S, 
you'll find it there. And let me uh, just go ahead and parent it to an image just so that you understand the concept here. So when I switch to the UI, what happens is here I can actually pile up different layers of, of, of effects that stack on top of each other. And all of these effects are really, uh, they're really, um, uh, uh, spread into different categories uh, that involve canvas, drawing, so for color filling, uh, but also things like hatch patterns. So for example, here, if I switch to dots, you see I can, I can combine this uh, with a... Halftone. Uh, exactly, uh, halftone. I, uh, I have uh, so lots of options that have to do with printing, uh, color filling, but also things that have to do with uh, outlines. So I can go ahead and combine drawing modes with outlines. There's blending modes. I can take a matte input into consideration. And actually, let's take a look at what happens when you involve a matte here. So I take the matte input here switch to F4, and so now you see uh, that actually what's happening is that everything is actually using the mat to, to, do the, to perform the drawing operations. And the other interesting thing is that the node supports also a mat output. So if I switch to the mat output, you will see that automatically the node tries to figure out what should happen on the mat that would make sense for you to, to, to use that as a layer further down the line in action. The, the whole thing was designed so that you could actually do stuff in a stylized and use it as a layer inside of action and create all sorts of graphic styles that combine together and then use all the lighting capabilities within action. So it's kind of cool. It's a, it's a lot of depth to the stylized node. So one thing that uh, I want to show you, and it's still a uh, work in progress at the moment where uh, we're recording this, uh, is, um, is a new object that we're introducing inside of action that we call the perspective grid. And uh, actually, it's funny because even on Flame News, there were people actually complaining about the fact that there was no way of actually doing four-corner pinning and blah, blah, blah. And actually, I answered that. And I said, well, it's a bit more complex because we're in a 3D world. Mm -hmm. And when we do corner pinning, we need to, you know, ideally, we would like to figure out what happens in the 3D world. And this is essentially what we're doing. So, uh, so the, perspective, uh, the perspective grid object is effectively um, something that behaves a lot like, a, like an axis. Uh, so when I add it to the scene, uh, there I go, it creates this, uh, this grid here. I can switch to the F8 view uh, because it's going to assume that this is the footage on which I want to actually understand the perspective. Mm -hmm. And as you see, it created this little object here that we're calling the perspective grid. And, uh, and this, is its, uh, this is its UI, uh, its temporary UI for now. And what happens now is that I can go ahead in this F8 view and as you see here, actually start taking the four corners and, um, and the grid's trying to interpret uh, what the perspective is as I'm actually moving the, cross, the crosshairs. So as you see, I have this um, zooming, uh, uh, zooming factor that, uh, that actually uh, happens here so that I can position things uh, accurately. easily, accurately in the image. But here's the twist. The twist here is that what I'm doing here is effectively not just understanding a generic perspective transform. I'm actually figuring out uh, what the field of view of the camera should be. Uh, and uh, so the camera that actually took this particular image. Right. Okay, I'm figuring that out. And second of all, I'm actually figuring out the orientation of the plane in 3D space. So if I, if I actually go to... Um, 
to the top view, what you will notice is that this is how my perspective grid is now oriented relatively to the camera. So it's not actually just creating like a fake 2D uh, flattened perspective transform. It's actually figuring it out in 3D space and changing the action camera settings so that effectively when I start uh, parenting things to that axis, it will actually look like it's working together. That's a big change because it actually can be kind of hard at times to actually manually set up a camera to match your scene without knowing anything about it. Yes. That can be really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. So the perspective grip will actually allow you to, to determine whether or not, for example, you want the camera to automatically embark and actually get change the action camera. That's what I, that's what I mean. Uh, but if not, we also have uh, another little cool feature here that uh, uh, we, at the camera level, you can actually now decide if uh, you want uh, a specific image to be in live target mode, and in that context, it will always be correctly framed by the camera, regardless of its field of view settings. So this is something that was missing right. uh, in, in previous versions, and it goes very well hand in hand with this stuff. So the thing that I want to show you now is here in my batch schematic, I have this uh, black colored frame and I draw this little graffiti here, okay? Now let's see how you can use this. As I said, the, the perspective grid is is really an axis, okay? So the minute that I parent something to it, it's actually really going to uh, transform it in 3D space. And since I've adjusted the field of view of my camera, things should actually match pretty well at this point. So let me go ahead and actually add a image and I'm parenting to the perspective grid and what you will see is that automatically it gets aligned with the perspective. So I'm going to switch the blend mode here. Let's go to something, exclusion, yeah. Exclusion works well. Uh, and at this point, I can go ahead and scale it. And as you see, as I move it, it actually moves along the perspective of the actual shot. So you can actually use it for, for two things. First of all, first of all, to do perspective alignments, but also to figure out what the actual field of view of the camera that shot the original shot was. So two little things that are that come in handy. Yeah, much more flexible than faking it with bilinear. Oh yeah, and it won't have the artifacts of a bilinear, which effectively creates a texture warp, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which uh, has some unwanted side effects on lines, which will look kind of like curved as opposed to really look like a straight line. There's there won't be any such thing here in this context. It's actually really a perspective transform. Very cool. Well, let's take a look at some of the new features that end up being. Uh, taking place in the editing timeline in batch. So the, uh, the, the thing that we're introducing also here in the extension is a change or at least an addition to the uh, BFX workflow. Um, and we think it's actually a game changer and a very good alternative to the post BFX for those who are familiar with it that mm -hmm. actually allow you to take a whole stack of layers and actually flatten it into a, into a flow graph. A uh, big problem with that is that you lose your editorial context. Once you've right. done that, it actually is hidden inside of batch, which is not necessarily something that's very easy to deal with. So in order to get the best of both worlds, what we're introducing here is the ability to actually have a floating flow graph above your editorial. And essentially, it's applying the concept of BFX to the concept of gap effects. Okay? Cool. So we call that gap BFX. And how do you use it? Well, here you see I have a... a a sh very simple timeline. It's one layer, but it, it could be multi-layer, doesn't really matter. And so I've added an extra layer here just so that I can actually have a gap that I select now. And you will notice now that in the batch effects section, pre is still available. And if I click on pre, 
there I go, I'm into batch. And I have a new style of clip here, which is called the back clip. And if we look at this back clip, well, essentially it's the result of the timeline that was underneath the gap, okay? So at that point, anything that would be underneath it, whether it's multi-layer, et cetera, would get rendered and passed on to the back clip. And now that I'm here, essentially from a batch perspective, this is as good as any other clip. So I can go ahead and use it and add nodes and I have access to all the nodes that I have inside of batch. In here to illustrate the example, I'm just gonna uh, you know, add a damage node. Uh, gonna insert it here and uh, actually use this opportunity to mention that we now have presets in, uh, in damage. Switch to the old archive uh, look and let's take a look here. So this is what I'm getting, okay. And I'm gonna exit back to the timeline. And the interesting thing here is you see that I have not lost my, uh, obviously my other editorial information. So if at this point I wanted to still change, you know, uh, something with trimming and stuff, I can still do. And as you see, the effect, the B effects that's on top of it kind of, you know, takes that input and, uh, and applies the effect live. It's kind of like an adjustment layer mm -hmm. uh, uh, for, for effects. Uh, but it goes beyond that because it effectively behaves really like media. So if I actually want to trim it, I can. Right. Okay. Now, if I'm if I'm at uh, let's say at the at the end of this clip, and let's say I wanted to create a dissolve, I can also do that. And as I do that, I actually create a transition from the flow graph effect uh, to uh, to no effect. So you see here, the dissolve actually gradually fades off, uh, fades off the effect. So the interesting here, thing here is that you can apply editorial concepts, which are very easy to do uh, uh, you know, from the timeline, um, apply them to actually flow graph effects. Um, and this goes, this goes very far, because essentially even if you had, if you had uh, animations, uh, and let me just uh, switch to this other clip that I've already prepared here. Uh, so here in this context, I, I have a BFX that's slightly more complex. I still have the old archive, but if I switch to the schematic, you see I added an action setup, and let's right. take a look at what it does. I have like this uh, uh, animation here where my damage uh, transitions into this uh, raise effect, and uh, I have my text that it fades in, return to old Montreal, and then it goes away, okay? So let's exit back to the timeline, and the thing that I want to point out is that since this has animation built into it, okay, uh, one thing that's really cool is that, uh, again, with the idea that this behaves like, uh, like a media, if I go ahead and actually start s slipping, I'm actually slipping the effect. But as you see, I'm still, I'm not changing anything about the editorial. So I'm applying here again an, an editorial operation, typically, which is slipping the, uh, the gap BFX segment um, and, and as you see, it shifts all the animations that are nested into it, which is, which is really, really cool. And again, if I wanted to, at this point, change anything about the edit, I still can. Okay, those things are completely separate. I don't necessarily have to choose between which one I manipulate. The other thing also is that these things stack. So, you know, I, I'm, I just have an extra layer here. I can go ahead and, and add another gap BFX here, and let's... Uh, Let's add a, oops, let's add a, let's say a color warper to create like a sepia uh, type of effect. So let me park myself at a frame where it's a bit more visible. And uh, let's go ahead and add a kind of like a sepia type of effect. There we go, exit back. And what you see here is that I, um, 
what you see here is that I actually stacked the sepia effect on top of the old archive effect. Now, you see that as I browse through the timeline here, the dissolve for the old archive effect actually makes it go away, but I still have my sepia effect. This is very flexible here. Um, so what's happening under the hood effectively for each of those uh, gap BFX, um, the layers below it are being flattened effectively, fed in as a background clip, and then effects applied on top of that. Yes, yes. And you can have as many of that, and you can, you know, you could even sandwich uh, video layers uh, between gap BFX. It's yeah. essentially the result of whatever's underneath that's being fed to the back clip uh, in the gap BFX. Um, and everything's going to stack together. Um, and as I said, you can create transitions, you can, you can uh, trim, slip, slide, all that stuff actually works. But I think one of the interesting things that you were mentioning also is these kind of operate effectively as clips themselves. So you yes. can actually save these BFX yes. as clips, effectively building up your tool library or fun clips and library effects that you might apply to certain things. Absolutely. I can drag them into, uh, I can drag them into the edit desk. And there I go, I have a gap BFX. I could, I could actually even save it into the library, for example. I could drag this into another timeline, for example, and it would apply the same effect uh, in, in, in whatever layer I drag this effect into. Um, so it's, it's, really, it's really pushing the analogy with media, except you're effectively manipulating a flow graph, and one that doesn't necessarily have media associated to it, so it's kind of like a virtual flow graph, if you like. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to work us through this today. Oh, it's cool, my pleasure. Well, that was brilliant. And look, we're just here in a SIDGRAPH and obviously got a ton of stuff coming from SIDGRAPH, but I hate to do this, but if we can jump forward to the next trade show, which is actually IBC, John will have even more stuff about the Autodesk stuff around that time frame. Yeah, the deal is basically they're still working on the software. The actual release date is happening in the September time frame. So closer to IBC, we'll be able to show more stuff in the software. So if there's stuff that you saw that Philippe was demoing and you'd like to learn more about, please let us know. Yeah, all you need to do is just go to this actual story on FX Guide in the comment fields. Just leave your suggestions there and then we'll check in with those and see if we can accommodate you around IBC. Well, that's it for this first step from Seagraph uh, here in Vancouver. I just want to give it a shout out to Jeff, who's in LA. Man, we wish you were here. We look forward to seeing you at IBC. And that's it for now. Let's head back to the studio and Angie. Thanks for that, guys. And now you may have heard me say in previous episodes, we would love to hear from you about the show. So please email us at tv at fxguide.com. Well, that's all we've got time for. Thank you again. See ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.